Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a bi-weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join our host, Jenna Kelly, as she dives into the world of attachment theory and trauma with field experts from across the nation. Hello there, my Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I hope this interview finds you well wherever you are listening or watching today. I am beyond excited to share this next conversation with you, where I get to sit down with Dr. Scott Lyons. I have been trying to get Dr. Scott on the podcast for several months. He's a very busy man. He's the author of the new book, Addicted to Drama, and he was so willing to come on. It was just a matter of our schedules aligning. And so I'm just so glad that it finally happened and I can bring you all this interview because I think you're going to learn so much from him. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a holistic psychologist, educator, and author, a renowned body-based trauma expert, doctor of osteopathy, and mind-body medicine specialist. Scott helps people to break free from cycles of pain, limited beliefs, and trauma. Scott is an innovator in transformative wellness and trauma therapy, teaching over a half a million people internationally to relieve stress and restore vitality. Scott has worked with many of the country's top leaders and CEOs as an executive coach and wellness consultant. He is the creator of the Embody Lab, the largest online learning platform for body-based trauma therapies and developer of somatic stress release, a holistic process of restoring biological resilience taught now in over 20 countries. He's also the founder and designer of Amala, a wellness brand dedicated to creating sustainably sourced tools for transformation. And that's why I wanted to bring him on because I've been learning from Scott in various, um, uh, in some of his various offerings and he is innovative. He's holistic. He brings in the somatic elements. He also speaks the attachment language. Um, he's, he's one that will just keep expanding your mind and your viewpoints. And his new book, Addicted to Drama, is, is amazing. And so we're going to talk a lot about that and all how this relates to attachment and some practical applications. And so without further ado, because this is the part you probably fast forward through all the time anyway, right? Like, let's just get to it, get to it, enjoy, and let me know what you think. Join us next month for a special webinar featuring Karin Andor, a previous guest on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Karin will dive deeper into the topic of childhood dissociation in this exciting event, offering attendees a chance to join the conversation and win exclusive prizes. The webinar will be on February 8th, 2024 at 10 a.m. Central. For more details and tickets, please visit tkcchadock.org. We can't wait to see you there. Hello, Scott. Welcome. It is such a true honor to be joining you in conversation today. I am really excited to be here and for our listeners to learn from you, as I know they will. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Yes. And you're incredibly busy writing an amazing book and traveling all over the world. So thank you for taking the time. It's been months in the making, but I, I know that our community will have so much to learn from you. 
So I would love to invite more of you into our conversation. And I would love for you to share an attachment memory of your own that feels really important to you and to your work and maybe the why of your work. Hmm. That's an interesting way to start. I like that. You know, it's it's interesting because there's the attachment stories we hear and like the the stories that might be shared. And then there's the ones we feel in our body. And sometimes those are not, those are the ones that come up and sometimes they're not. And I know for me, like um, one of the stories that really struck me when I was a, a young adult, when my family told me was that um, as my mom was giving birth to me, she she herniated several of her discs and was uh, bed bound for several months um, and even hospital bound for the first bit of time. And, you know, it, it, that story really hit me viscerally um, as an adult or as a young adult when I was like, oh, what a what a very volatile kind of dramatic way to enter into the world, mm -hmm. not just for me, but also for for her. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had the conversation with her, like, what was that like for you? How often did you see me? And, you know, some of it which is interesting when she spoke about like, oh, you know, there were days where I couldn't see you. I was in too much pain or it was, you know, um, heavily medicated. And and some of that I remember going, oh, that doesn't really have a resonance in my body. Like yeah. that part of this story doesn't seem to have some sort of holding in me. And other parts of the story did. And and I followed that in terms of my own process of healing and somatic uh, processing as to like what what actually still in the narrative that she could share still felt like it belonged or still felt like it existed as something to be metabolized and processed. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, mm. you know, I know you, that's one of the things that that I so appreciate about you is your vulnerability to share mm. so openly. I think it really helps people connect with you in your work and in your teachings. And mm. that example is such an example of how it can go back so early, even when we don't yeah. have the words for it, that that is a part of your experience and your earliest attachment memories, as well as like yeah. you said, for, for your mom. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, attachment is such a f interesting thing to go back and work with as a therapist with a client, because it's like, we don't typically have you know narrative memories until at least three years old but we have our implicit memory our body memory within the womb mm -hmm. we, you know within the second trimester we still start developing that capacity to keep the score so to speak and depending on other traditions including like body mind centering other somatic traditions they'll talk about even the first couple uh, the first and second trimester, having a body memory, having a body story. And then, of course, we, as we get into epigenetics, we're looking at like even before we're sort of formed, there's a memory that sort of um, is is attached to us as we develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, we could go so deep in <laughs> into that. And I think going to your new book, which I can't get enough of, um, Addicted to Drama, 
I think so much of that starts there, even when we don't have the narrative for it. So I would love for you to share with our community, what do you mean when you talk about addiction to drama and especially in the context of attachment? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things to that we can start to um, play with or deconstruct is there's drama, which most of us might have some semblance of or understanding of, and then there's addiction. So I like to separate it out a little bit, and then we combine the two or connect them back in. And, you know, we all kind of viscerally know drama. Like we know, like when if I were to say to you, hey, do you know someone addicted to drama? I imagine someone comes to mind, even if you don't know what the definition of it is. Oh, yes. And, and like you might have a visceral response. You might have even like a disgust face on you, something, because we know it impacts ourselves and we know it impacts us and we know it, it, it has, it plagues other people. And so, but we don't necessarily know how to define it, except like oftentimes people say like, Oh, that's just someone who needs attention. And and for the most part, that couldn't be farther from what it actually is. Mm-hmm. So drama is the unnecessary turmoil. It's the ex- exaggeration. It's the intensification of narratives and stories and emotions that someone projects out or creates within themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's representative of a dysregulation in the nervous system. Um, And, you know, when, and it means that the efficiency of emotions, energy, and attention are not being, someone can't accurately measure how much is needed to functionally adapt and or interact in the world. And and that's where we start to look at the uh, the drama as an issue, because mm-hmm. drama can also be fun too, right? Like you go to a movie and there's like deep suspense and there's like entertainment value to it. Um, but where it starts to go really challenging is where that dysregulation becomes the like the constant, mm-hmm. where that inefficiency to accurately measure how much energy, attention, emotion is needed. And so there's a disproportionate response to what's actually happening in front of you or around you. And so that's that's the addiction part. And then we go, whoa, how could someone be possibly addicted to that? Because how could someone become attached or dependent on things that make them more stressful or agitated or activated or dysregulated? Why would someone become addicted to their dysregulated state? And the answer is is somewhat simple, is because chasing the drama helps them avoid the trauma. Mm. And so meaning there's some type of survival mechanism that underlines it and, and it's like fuel to continue it. And that's really what an addiction is, right? Mm -hmm. There's some type of underlying urge driver to continue something as a means of avoidance, Mm -hmm. as a means of protection, as a means of survival. And so things like stress that we we often hear like, oh, stress is bad for you. And and that's kind of where the sort of ideology or the, the, the understanding of stress lives. But there's so much more to it. 
And when we start to understand like the benefits, so to speak, of stress. So when we're in a stress state and there are things like it provides more energy. So often for people who have a trauma background, you'll see things like depression or depressed immune system or depressed energy system, which are kind of all the same. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a malaise. There's a sense of like, oh, there's something wrong with me. And there, and what is actually underneath is there's an inefficiency of energy use. So there, this the dysfunction that we were talking about earlier is represented by a challenging, um, a challenge to homeostasis, a challenge to how much energy is used and the effectiveness of preserving it for adaptation. Also, like when you have a lot of trauma, it takes out of your energy bank. There's always some type of energy being taken out of your everyday need towards maintaining the, the stuckness of it in your body. So when we're talking about how stress actually provides a level of energy, it's like an extra battery pack. It's like taking drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know this state. Like when you're get starting to get um, stressed out and activated, you t- you totally often feel the release of all that cortisol and adrenaline and streaming through your blood, and you feel the rise of energy, so you can act. Mm-hmm. And so we become attached for one to that extra battery pack, to finally having some energy to go do something. And, and the problem is, is that we have to go seek or create the crisis and the chaos to get that energy. Mm-hmm. Another component of stress that's really interesting, I, you know, like I didn't know this growing up, but it wasn't until I was began my research. So I was like, oh, stress is one of our most, um, one of our most effective pain relievers because what happens in a state of stress is it blocks the pain receptors so if you if you have ever gone for a run and you know that runner is high what's actually happening is that it's running is a stress on the body and what happens is it releases those endorphins which block the pain receptors and you feel that sort of you know, sense of elation. It's like, oh, I feel good. Right. <laughs> what it is, is it's just like an opioid blocker. And uh, and so stress does that naturally. So does love. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Love and stress are the most effective pain relievers we have that are self-producing. And since for some of us, if love doesn't feel safe as a period, then we don't use it as a pain reliever especially if we've had relational trauma. So what are we going to use? Stress. Mm-hmm. And so those two alone are are really, you know, evidence of, but there's even more. Like one of the things that happens with trauma, whether it's developmental trauma or attachment trauma, is that we start to lose sensation of our body. And we disconnect, we dissociate, we take a vacation from our own selves And what happens in that process is we begin to lose our ability to map our sense of self in relation to the world. And we become numb. And in that numbness, we also lose a sense of purpose. So there's a real connection in neuroscience between a sense of self to self-esteem, to self-worth, to self-soothing, to even a sense of self-purpose. 
Without self, we don't have any of those other pieces. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that going in and, and creating big scenarios or big emotions, big stressful experiences help rise above the threshold of that numbness so we feel something. Mm -hmm. And so feeling something gives us a sense of where and how we are, even if, but it requires the decibel of stimulus to be at such a higher volume than what most people need. Mm -hmm. So that, so all of these things really create this attachment, this dependency on it. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up with a lot of early developmental trauma, felt very alone in the world. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that crisis or stress is also one of the most effective social bonding agents. It is social glue. Mm -hmm. Like we bond through drama. Mm -hmm. And like, there's, a, there's a great study that um, was done at one of the universities in Australia, where they made a group of individuals, they had a neutral group and a, 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 what's called the control group, and then the other group. And the control group uh, stuck their hand in like tepid water, so neutral water. And the other group had to stick their hand in ice cold water. And the group that stuck their hand in ice cold water, so who experienced some pain together, worked more efficiently and effectively towards the next tasks that they had to complete. Mm -hmm. And they felt closer in relation to each other than the group that didn't experience some type of drama or crisis. And so those four things, the energy, the pain relief, the social glue, you know, these things, the, this, the increase of sensation away from numbness, these things create a dependency because we can't get them anywhere else if we've had this long lasting experience of trauma that's been stored in our body and created this numbness, this disconnect, this malaise, this lack of energy, this lack of relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much depth in that response. And I think I, I'm going to use, and I'll always give you credit, but I'm going to, the new tagline is we um, chase the drama to avoid the trauma. Yeah. And the other thing, and I love that you threw some research in there that I was not familiar with, because I think that helps normalize this propensity towards addiction to drama. And I know it's, it's sure. a, a spectrum. Yeah. Um, but like you said, we all know someone you asked that in your book too. And as soon as you yeah. ask that question, of course, we, we all have this intuitive knowing of somebody who mm. has some addiction to drama, you know, yeah. a couple people in my family and friend circle came, came right mm. to mind. And then I also love that you invite us to look at ourselves too, because it's easier, of course, to identify <laughs> others. It's always easier. But yet we all have this, you know, some propensity, like, you know, you talk about it being a, a spectrum. I've heard you yeah. talk about in other spaces. Um, yeah. So I think it's so important to look at our own histories. It's, it yeah. can be difficult to do that, but, yeah. but very important. And how we relate to drama and stress and how that might be helping meet some of our needs. Yeah. And then also the others that we're in relationship with. Mm. The other thing that I wonder keeps this going 
is this familiarity that it that we feel within our bodies and our nervous systems when we're when we're creating this this chaos and drama Mm -hmm. that there's this sense of comfort and safety and then that can go back to again those earlier developmental relationships and attachment patterns yeah yeah there's something really interesting about um, great questions by the way and you know we often think of attachment purely as the relationship between the child and the parent or the caregivers. And back in the day, it used to just be between the kid and the mom, which mm-hmm. we now know is, you know, not, not the case, mm-hmm. but where attachment is expanding is to really be able to identify, Oh, wait, there's a, there's a attunement that also happens between the child and the environment or the child in the community. And if there's a lot of challenge in the environment, if there's a lot of chaos, if there's even a lot of sounds, for example, like car honking trains that we've identified in the research, that that too can disrupt the bonding and they become attuned to the ecosystem. So what's interesting is that when a child cannot attune with a parent, they will attune with the environment. And if the environment is also chaos, they will adapt that like a sponge as their internal environment, and that becomes the status quo. And so what we talk about as comfortable is it's comfortable because that has become the normal. And it can feel very dysregulating and even threatening when we challenge the normal because we have adapted all of our survival mechanisms to maintain that what we think as as the effective or efficient homeostasis, which is really, in often cases, just an internalization of the crisis and a normalization of it. And why I, and I discern that because homeostasis means that there's a, a level to which we are able to be adaptive. And what's challenging is that when we've internalized chaos is that we aren't actually being adaptive we we need a certain level of crisis constantly so if we're in a calm environment like a yoga class for example and we're in it and it starts to get quiet we become agitated or we start to think of memories or stories or create scenarios in our head to get out of that sense of calm. And we're not able to adapt and be in calm just as much as we are able to adapt and be in spaces that are chaotic. And that's the difference between a true uh, functional adaptive homeostasis versus an internalization of crisis as the normal. Mm -hmm. Yes. So again, I think that goes back to that normalization that this has been adaptive. For mm-hmm. people and and that's what i was trying to say earlier but but yeah you know i easily lose track because you have so much great information is <laughs> is when we can you know we can we know those people that are addicted yeah. to trauma but what doesn't come as easy is really trying to understand the root causes of that yeah. and that these are people including sometimes ourselves mm-hmm. that are really in pain and that have yeah. these unmet needs Mm-hmm. And when we can shift in that way, I think it just opens up so many more possibilities. Yeah. 
there's some really beautiful research that that shows like when someone's able to be validated, it actually relaxes the muscles. So I call that a validation reflex. And what's not possible in most individuals who've had significant trauma and shows up as addiction to drama is that they're not able to feel validated. They're not able to lower the drawbridge of connection, that bridge to allow other people's recognition in. It feels too vulnerable, too dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so they constantly feel unseen, unheard, and that pattern gets replicated that they'll find the scenarios or because they're not able to let people in, it proves like a cognitive um, bias, the confirmation bias, excuse me, that they're not able to be seen and heard in this world. No one has their back. And so one of the consequences of that is that they do something called weaponized empathy, which is in, because I can't take in that you actually see and hear and, and can empathize with me, I in turn create scenarios or create situations to which you might feel as bad as I feel. Mm-hmm. So I'll keep uh, attacking you or getting into fights with you or reminding you of that way that you hurt me until you I, I perceive that you feel the same ache, the same pain, the same loneliness that I feel. And that's called weaponized empathy, um, which is, you know, a a pretty prevalent thing I see more and more in our culture is like, um, you know, I saw a couple uh, when I used to do more couples work a couple of years ago in which the, the, the wife was not able to release an old story. And I, we got to a point where I said, what would be the worst that could happen if you release that old story? And she would say, and she said, well, then he would never understand how bad I feel. Mm-hmm. And that, and it was at the same time, she couldn't release the story. So she couldn't release how bad she feels. She couldn't trust that he could ever empathize with her or understand because she couldn't lower that drawbridge and let him in. Mm-hmm. And so you see how these cycles of weaponized empathy just build on more and more of the underlying pattern of loneliness and um, and and maintaining the trauma within. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this feeling of no one really, truly gets me. Yeah. And so weaponizing the empathy, I think, just is a way to keep them, like you said, to keep the drawbridge up. Yeah. It's it's why, like, if you've ever been around someone who's addicted to drama, you feel like they just pulled you into their crisis. It's like a tornado of sorts. Mm-hmm. Like, they just pull you in, and all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, what just happened? How did I get involved in that? Yeah, some whiplash going on now. <laughs> some whiplash. <laughs> some addicted to drama whiplash. It's real. Mm-hmm. And, and it's real in the sense of that is their safest way of connecting. Mm-hmm. Not only can they siphon off some of the energy to help them keep rolling down the drama hill, so to speak? But it's also, it's the closest they can feel. Again, remember, we bond through crisis and chaos. And for them, that is how they feel connected. I mean, often, you know, as as kids, where did we get the most attention? I know for me, when I was sick or in trouble or challenged, or challenged in some point in my life, that's where my parents showed up the most. And so that became the sort of the the way in which I recognized I was loved is when there was something wrong. 
And, and that seeps in and becomes like, oh, if I want to be loved and seen and heard, I need to be in constant crisis and chaos. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's hard to break out of, to trust that, oh, I will be recognized. I will be honored. I will be met. I will be loved if things are also okay or even good. Mm-hmm. Yes. I wonder how this shows up for a parent or caregiver mm-hmm. who has a higher propensity towards this addiction to trauma. What have you seen in their interactions with their children? Yeah. I mean, when I talk about a chaotic environment, it's it's as though often in these cases, the parent is projecting into the environment. So not only are they chaotic, but they're are creating chaos in the ecosystem, the environment to which the child is growing up in. And they can't settle. I mean, like the parents I have, look, if you're a parent, you know what it's like. It's fucking hard. (laughs) (laughs) It is so hard. You don't sleep. Every, especially if it's your first kid, you think like every little sniff or, you know, a cold is like, is this it? Are they going to be okay? You know, like that. And there's a hypervigilance and, you know, so I just want to honor being a parent is super hard. And absolutely. You know, as my mom used to say when I when I was a kid, she was like, Well, no one's ever written a book about it, mm-hmm. which is not true. But like what she meant is like there's no true manual for it. There's so many books and so many people have ideas. And and in the end, it kind of feels like you have some support, but you're also alone. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to normalize that. And what I find for parents who are really in these cycles of addiction to drama and crisis and chaos is that there's their crisis hopping with their kid. They're like, oh, you know, like, what if he doesn't get into Harvard? And what if um, this cold is really a sign of allergies? And and it's like, they're so uh, fixed in the crises that they're unable to rest and enjoy and receive and be in connection and attunement with the child themselves. And that lack of attunement leads to lack of co-regulation, meaning that the child then isn't able to learn the processes of self-regulation, of self-soothing. And so they also aren't equipped to be adaptive in the world and and are going to be more um, related to crisis and chaos than they are to, to ease and calm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Secure attachment is not characterized by drama. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the way you, you again, normalize that as parents already have so much on their plates. So much. And yet, if they have this, you know, higher propensity towards addiction to drama and crisis and chaos, then they're more likely to project that unmet need onto yeah. their relationship with their child, and then their child internalizes that. So, you know, it's those transgenerational ways that these patterns also get passed down, which, which I know you also talk about in, in your book. Yeah. And as a kid, you kind of have two choices is what I've seen in my, in the research and working with clients, you kind of either join into the chaos or you become passive to it and kind of deflate and, um, you know, become, frozen. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's interesting in the process of like, you know, um, 
I didn't say this in the book, but I, you know, interviewed my sister on my podcast and we talked. I listened to that and I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I joined the fight. I was like, I learned to be agitated and I learned to like throw logs on the fire and siphon from that energy in the world and utilize that to, to get up and do things. And she really deflated in response mm-hmm. to the the crisis and the chaos and the drama in our family, and would hide literally in bathrooms. and And it took and really struggled in her life with like actualizing and feeling motivated to go do things. She would go attend to other people, God bless, more than she would attend to herself because she just didn't feel like she knew how. Mm-hmm. And to make big life choices, she just felt like I, she, she, she didn't have the energy or the the know how to where she could, you know, go and work with all these school kids who have so many challenges and just feel like she's at ease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, it's to say like. It's not only contagious at times in the family, that addiction to drama, and it pours into the kids, but it's also like they have to make a choice. Do I join in to the addiction or do I deflate and become numb, Mm -hmm. which can sometimes lead to that addiction to drama anyways. Mm -hmm. Just try to feel something in the world. Yeah. I really love that episode. The two of you together were so hilarious <laughs> and so real, which also makes me think about the sibling relationship and yeah. how that maybe buffered some of that trauma that in drama that you talk about that that mm. was in your household. And yeah, I mean, is there more you want to say about the sibling relationships and, and attachment? Yeah, I mean, the Venn diagram of sibling realities might be overlapping and it might be quite different you know like for example my sister and i grew up in the same household we have some shared memories but we have very different perceptions of how we grew up i have a a, a, a memories that were much more violent and aggressive and frightening and um ideas around money and pop you know politics that emerge from that, that are very different from her. Like I, I thought we grew up in a very, um, uh, in a, in a financial place that was very unsurvival. That's what I remember. And, uh, and for her, she doesn't have that memory. And so like, it's also a very interesting thing about like, you know, and, and, I remember growing up where there was a lot more drama in our family and crisis and not just, you know, I don't mean with my parents, I mean, in my extended family. And she doesn't have that sense as uh, that it was when we were kids. She had it more that it was somewhat present, but really more present um, when we were uh, adults. And so like, there's this interesting thing again about like, um, sibling experiences are going to be somewhat overlapping, but also different. And how do you appreciate their experience and their reality and not feel like they have to also have the same to feel validated in your own? Right. I'm so so glad you you named that. And (laughs) it probably makes sense if your sister was more deflated and numb and shut down, that her memories and experiences, interpretations are going to be much different. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's such a beautiful point and reflection of what I was sharing, because it's like, we all have our own compensations and our survival mechanisms and they affect how our memory works mm -hmm. and, and, and how our memory works affects how our sense of reality exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that I appreciate that your book does so beautifully. And also when I've heard you teach in other spaces is when you talk about boundaries mm -hmm. and I would love for you to just give us some insight on how bound boundaries impact our sense of self and those attachment patterns. And especially if we could bring it back to, you know, a baby's earliest experiences with, with boundaries and how does that either, you know, support the attachment process or possibly hinder it? Yeah. I mean, you know, boundaries have been something that's become really a popular thing and it's like and and as i have heard it in the last couple of years it's like boundaries are what you say yes to and what you say no to and you know that's an interesting idea and it's it, there's there's some accuracy to it i think it's a limited idea um but long before we had words we had boundaries and so that's an important thing to um to recognize it's like, okay, well, how did boundaries show up non-verbally before we could say yes or no? And one of the things is looking at where did we first have a sense of boundary? So our first boundary was being in the womb. We had literally a barrier, whether it's to sound or stimulus or other things to food, um, which was about regulation was about how much yes, how much no were we getting of stimulus, of food, of sound, all of these things. And the, well, and the buffer offered some type of modulation. Now, another level of boundary that came, you know, post-birth was like literally being held in our parents' arm. Our, the, the contact, the touch gave us a sense or began to help us map where we began and where we ended. And the, that level of safe holding created a sense of barrier, just like the womb did. And so we internalize this um, as we become, as we were kids and become adults, is these early sense of boundaries. Were they present? Were they safe? You know, if a parent feels very uncertain when they're holding us and, and, and doesn't give us a firm sense of clarity, that might actually impact our the the security of our sense of boundary and you know and and again what it comes back to is do we have the ability in our life to be adaptive in how much yes and how much no do we have agency in that and if the answer is yes that's really representative of there is boundary there has been boundary established. And if it's no, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't like some situation happens and I always react the same way, regardless of how I'm feeling in that moment. That's actually often a boundary rupture, mm -hmm. like where we don't have the ability to, to, to shift and adapt and to say, oh, this is too much sound, or can you turn that down? Or can you turn that up? So I think that goes back to the earlier question of how a parent or caregiver who has 
more addiction to drama and chaos might be interacting with their their baby and their child. And when they're kind of projecting their stuff onto their baby and their child, they're not as likely to read those cues for when a boundary is needed or to, you know, maybe be too invasive and not recognize that the baby's maybe looking away and saying, I need a break Um, or not engaging at all, you know, recognizing that here's, here's some cues for, for I'm here, engage with me, but I'm, you know, responding to my own, my own stuff right now. And so I, I think that bringing boundaries into the context of, of attachment, like you said, especially those nonverbals when it first started is, is so needed and, and really appreciate the way your book does this and your teachings do this. So, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate you really naming that sense of when attunement is off. So that ability to register the cues, then, you know, what ends up happening is the child doesn't get met and seen and felt and heard. And that's a pretty early rupture. Mm-hmm. And that rupture becomes stored in the body because especially if the the parent doesn't know how to do the repair or isn't mm-hmm. co-regulating to support the repair, then that that rupture consistently of being unmet, unneed, unseen resides in the body and builds up to become a level of numbness. And that level of numbness needs a certain level of stimulation to overcome it. And then we see just a, a sort of one of the pathways of an addiction to drama. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that goes to, in your book, you talk about these, these boundary challenges mm-hmm. versus boundary ruptures or violations. Yeah. And I think that's such an important way to look at it too, because in those parent-child interactions, there's going to be matches and mismatches. Totally. And I think that would fall more into that challenged category yeah. and that yeah. happens all throughout life. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also these bigger kind of violations or um, ruptures, and especially mm-hmm. when those are not met with the ability to repair and co-regulate, then that's when the, those patterns really become more internalized into yeah. our sense of who we are in the world. Yeah, exactly. And that's, an, you know, being able to even discern, um, oh, that's just a ch- boundary challenge, like, oh, my partner didn't respect my timing, which I had laid out. That's a challenge. That's not mm-hmm. a, that's not a rupture, you know, but if someone, um, and it's really, it's not so circumstantial, uh, because it might feel like a rupture to me if I'm not able to really be like, Oh, it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal. So my ability to zoom out and if everything feels like a rupture, you're probably addicted to drama. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're able to go, oh, that's that's irritating. That's that's like, ooh, that feels frustrating. But it doesn't, it doesn't knock me down or send me in a tizzy. Um, where a boundary is a boundary rupture, there's often a lot of freeze in the system. You know, like if you've ever opened the door to your house on a really cold cold day and you're like ooh, there's a little bit of shock and freeze and mm-hmm. and some immobility and like and it takes some time for you not just to warm up but to be to to melt from the shock of it that's more what happens in a rupture mm-hmm. 
And it takes some time to not only repair yourself, but to come back into bridge the bridge the connection between yourself and someone else. Mm-hmm. I had a wise colleague, and I don't know where he got this from, so I can't give credit to where it originated. But he talked about the difference between disagreeable versus unacceptable, and I apply mm-hmm. this just so much in in my work and and personal life as well. It's like you know, we can kind of dance around the disagreeable that's going to happen. Like I said, those matches and mismatches, but when it crosses that line and our lines may be different, you know, depending on our history, like, like you talked about, or if we're addicted to drama or not, but when it crosses (laughs) that line, you open that door and that's where it reaches into that unacceptable threshold. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. And I know that you have are much different person now than some of the memories you shared about as, as a younger child. And I wonder what you've done within your own healing. And also, I know you talk about this so much in your book about how do you heal from this addiction to drama? Yeah. I mean, one of the things to recognize is it's going to be a different path for each person. And I, you know, I will say it takes time for this because there's a lot of layers to it. You know, becoming more comfortable with with discomfort and becoming more comfortable with silence and space and calm is its own whole process. And there's a lot of rewiring that happens in this process of becoming unaddicted to drama and you'll have relapses. And even so recognizing and normalizing relapse is also part of the process. But essentially, you know, the first piece, as in most processes of healing is awareness is going, Oh, I think I'm revving myself or I'm noticing they said this and the response according to other people seems maybe a little bit bigger than what's needed. So I start to go, what's happening in that moment? I don't feel like it's bigger than what's needed. But like, if other people keep giving me that feedback, I go, what's happening? Oh, I feel so much fire in my chest. And I feel like, um, a, like a gripping in my whole face. And I feel like I'm reaching out to try to get people to come towards me and pushing them away at the same time. Whatever your awareness is, you start to build that recognition. And over time, you also become aware of going, oh, they said this, and I started adding in my own scripts or other ways of what we call revving. So essentially stimulating, activating, agitating yourself. That's what revving is. So it's like, oh, I found myself in a thought bind, which is like, oh, I want this. But if I get that, that means this. But if I don't do that, then it means this, that's a bind. And I just keep myself in agitation or I'm creating stories in my head. That's a rev or I'm getting into fights with people when we could have just talked it through. All of those are revving ways of of creating more um, stress in my system and or more energy, as we might call it, and starting to recognize when I'm doing that is going to be key because as we create more space between desiring to do that and actually doing it, that's the passageway that we will eventually need to get to the underlying trauma that's kind of fueling it all. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, another step along the way then is then getting through that, through that sort of arc um, or that space and starting to process and metabolize through things like somatic experiencing or sensory motor processing or any other really EMDR, any other really great um, technique of processing the trauma. And then we have, um, you know, a lot of processes of letting go of our attachment or what we could, might say is our label. So it's like, this is who I am, is often one of the things my clients will say. I'm just an anxious person. And so like, I might say, you know, as we're, as we're moving through some of the trauma and such, I might say, well, who else would you be? Who else are you in addition to this? Not to say that's not who you are, because that's who you have been for a long time. And so we start to build other options of who they are besides the crisis and the chaos that they found themselves in over and over again, mm-hmm. or the yeah. victim. Mm-hmm. Those labels are so powerful and resonant in our physiology. And I really appreciate in the book how, because I know we can't, you know, healing we could talk about <laughs> go on and on and on. But in the book, you have so many prompts, journaling, mm-hmm. um, ways to reframe our language, all of that. So this it'll be a great resource to our community. We also have a lot of therapists that listen. In, and so I love how you also offer a therapist might suggest. Yeah. And so for those of you working with with clients who have an addiction to drama, there's some some things that you can really utilize in this book to help your your clients and as well. So so in addition to that, tell us more about the amazing resources and things that you do, because that's how I discovered you. And now I can't stop consuming <laughs> you and all your offerings, because just when I think you've like put out the coolest thing, then it's like, oh, now there's a certificate in this. And <laughs> so tell yeah. us more. Yeah. So um, I uh, founded something called the Embody Lab, which is a, a hub for somatic and embodied education. And we have uh, a lot of resources on there. We have free resources uh, in terms of like summits that we offer once a month or once every other month. We have um, a lot of workshops and certificate programs like you did our somatic attachment therapy program or a trauma therapy program. Uh, We have an EMDR program and we have lots of exciting things on the horizon that I can't quite name yet. (laughs) Um, but you know, I love one of my favorite things in the world is creating curriculum and programming. And, um, I'm happy to just be able to do that with some of the most incredible teachers in the world coming in and offering their wisdom in this, in this way. And, um, so that's, and, and really, you know, like the idea of the Embody Lab was at the heart of it was accessible education. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of these somatic programs take years and we don't have years necessarily. We don't feel like we have years or we don't feel like we have all the, the, the incredible expense it costs often to get trained or to, to help heal ourselves. And so that was a big part of like, what can we do to offer more accessible education um, available online, for example, um, at lower prices than than most programming, and so that that was at the heart of our values um, in creating the Embody Lab. 
and um, also have my podcast, uh, which is it's a lot of fun and playful as well. Yes. Uh, it's called The Gently Used Human uh, with Dr. Scott Lyons and have some fun guests and really deconstruct uh, science and psychology and um, through a lens of really like recognizing we're all gently used humans just trying to make it in the world. And um, and uh, yeah, I have some my book and um, uh online i'm uh on social media i'm at dr scott lyons so there's posts and um lots of video clips there of uh resources and tools and stuff like that as well yes people can be sucked into a good vortex this time (laughs) (laughs) of so much rich learning and and like i told you in the beginning before we even started recording that that's why i wanted you on here because You've helped expand my thinking and skills so much when it comes to attachment and trauma work and really bringing in a more holistic and innovative way of looking at it and bringing in the somatics into it. And I'm so grateful to you. And I know our community, if they haven't discovered you, will have so much fun doing that. And we'll be sure to link all of those things in the show notes. Um, And unfortunately, our conversation is is wrapping up, but this (laughs) is all that I expected it to be and more. So thank you, Scott. And I want to end on one final question, which is what do you envision for the future when it comes to all the amazing work that you're doing? Mm. Gosh, I mean, I'm, we're, I'm just started adding back in live events. And um, so I think that there's, you know, I'm really excited about, the possibilities in the future of what both live and um, online education can do in terms of somatics and embodiment. And I think that, I don't know, for me, then like, there's just so much more to learn and, and, and integrate. And so there's just so much on the horizon I'm excited about and possibilities. So, yes, yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait to join you in some of that and hear what's next. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being a guest today. And I look forward to when our paths will cross again. So I know I'm going to keep learning from you. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for your interest and your love of somatics and and healing and all the work that you're doing with your communities as well. Oh, thank you. All right. Take care. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share with your friends and coworkers. You can also connect and chat with other listeners through our Facebook group. On behalf of all of us here at the Knowledge Center, thanks for tuning in.